Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down and discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you are an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this podcast. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information. My name is Gretchen Lindsay, and I am a Senior Vice President of Clinical Services at CPS, and I will be your host for today's episode. With me today are Jess Nesham, who is an emergency medicine pharmacy specialist at Mercy One in Des Moines, Iowa, and David Zimmerman, associate professor of pharmacy and an EM pharmacist at Duquesne University. Thanks for joining us today, Jess and Dave. Let's get started talking about today's topic, naloxone distribution from the hospital. For our first question, Dave, would you start us off? What does naloxone distribution look like at your institution? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say uh, thank you for, for having me on today. Um, so for us, uh, we, we stock um, naloxone in our automated dispensing cabinets in our ED. We have a couple of different ones um, but, uh, in our ED, but stock it in each one. Um, and basically the general process is prescribers will place an order in the electronic health record for a uh, to-go supply. Um, this is going to be different than supply that we use um, in ED uh, for uh, a reversal, but this is going to be a to-go kind of packaging. Yeah. Either a nurse or a pharmacist will retrieve it um, from the dispensing cabinet and then give it to the patient. Um, since we're not administering it, um, we're not able to charge for, charge the patient for it. But again, we're kind of giving this out uh, to the community because obviously there's huge there's a huge benefit in doing so. It's a life-saving medication. And really the supply is for anyone, whether it's somebody that's coming in um, post-overdose, um, somebody with a history of substance use disorder, somebody getting a prescription for an opioid, um, or really anybody that asks for it. And that's our typical process that we use for naloxone distribution. Thanks, Dave. Um, Jess, Jess, would you share? Yeah. And again, thanks for having me as well. Um, So at our site, we do maintain a supply of free kits from the state. So we were able to obtain those and we get a yearly allocation for our hospitals. And so similar to other states, Iowa's laws for dispensing require patient specific information to be included on labels. So we actually dispense all of our kits from our inpatient pharmacy rather than having them in the automated dispensing cabinets, which would then require the nurse to have to write into the label. It just made it easier for our system to do it that way. Again, having it come from the inpatient side, we made that decision because we don't have 24-7 outpatient pharmacies, and we wanted to make sure that we could maintain uh, access at all points of the day. We also tried to streamline our dispensing so any members of the care team can place an order uh, so that we can get that sent out in a timely fashion. And then we have the nurse do the counseling and the actual dispensing to the patient at the bedside, either in the ED or on the inpatient side as well. Just other things uh, from the state side is that here in Iowa, we do require PMP reporting for all uh, opioid antagonists. So we had to build that into our system too. So the system really kind of accounts for that and ensures that that happens. Great. Thanks to you both for sharing your distribution process. Jess, why don't you start us off with the next question? Um, What formulations do each of you use at your institutions and where um, do you dispense it from? 
Yeah. So we use the nasal spray. So that was the kit that we were able to obtain, again, the free allocations from the state. So it comes with two four milligram doses that are ready to administer. Uh, these have definitely become more widely accessible and often can be obtained free of charge, but the injectable formulation is still a viable option. So if you can't get the kit or if cost is an issue for you, that's definitely something. Those just require more patient education. So that would be essential if you did have to go the route using the injectable that the patient knows how to use it uh, in that time frame. And Dave? Yeah, so um, we started at, we started off with the injectable um, about four or five years ago. We used the, the two milligram per two ml kind of carp eject. And then we would um, you know package that with an IM needle uh, directions and an atomizer. Um, that's what we started off using for the first year or two. And then the um, atomizers uh, went on shortage. We weren't able to get them anymore on a routine basis. So we, at that time, switched over to the uh, commercially available nasal spray that, that Jess mentioned. Um, and we, we uh, package that in our, um, our uh, dispensing cabinets as well. Um, so a slight variation um, from, from what you know, Jess described, and this is kind of pointing out, like, it's not a one-size-fits-all model, so it's going to be whatever is best for your institution. We, we will take the uh, nasal spray um, packaging, um, we'll dispense the entire box, so the, the two four-milligram doses, um, and we'll affix um, a prescription label to comply with state uh, dispensing laws, has all the information except for the patient's name, date, and the prescriber that's left a blank. That'll be stored in our ED um, dispensing cabinets. An order goes in, pharmacist or nurse retrieves it from the cabinet, and then we'll fill in the information, the patient's name, uh, the date, and the prescriber, again, to, to be in compliance with state prescribing laws. Um, and then either, if, if it's a nurse that filled out that information, then he or she will take it to a pharmacist or prescriber to do a final checkoff, make sure everything is correct, and then the nurse will then give it to the patient. We originally started with just dispensing in the ED, um, but then uh, two or three years ago, it's hard with pandemic time, but a couple years ago, we started uh, dispensing for um, patients that were being discharged from the hospital. Um, with that process, that's that come those supply comes um, from Central Pharmacy from the beginning. So otherwise, pretty much a, a identical process there. So thanks very much for that information. It's great to see you know, how the distribution and utilization is being done. Um, it's definitely become a need in most communities. So would each of you tell us um, how the process got started at your facility? Um, why don't we start with Dave and then um, just talk about that afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. So this is definitely a, you know, multi-professional, multidisciplinary effort. Um, for us, the, the, the kind of key stakeholders was um, uh, Dr. Mike Lynch, who's an EM physician, toxicologist, and head of our Pittsburgh Poison Control Center here in uh, Pittsburgh. Um, our director of pharmacy, uh, Dr. Andrea Sargent, and then our ED medical director, Dr. Mike Totoro, um, that kind of like spearheaded this and saw the you know, the benefit of this, again, this was four or five years ago now. Um, it started off at our hospital where I'm at. I'm, I'm part of a 25, 30 hospital health system. So where I'm at, it's a underserved um, urban environment with a large um, population with substance use disorder um, and, and um, kind of underserved community. Uh, community. Um, 
so we were kind of like the the pilot ship. Um, we started it and then saw a huge benefit. And now all of our EDs throughout the system, or, or most of them now, um, have this process in place. Um, but it, it was really just started from, hey, we have a giant need um, to get naloxone out into the community. Um, the ED is a great way to do that. So let's come together. And it was really pharmacy, emergency medicine, toxicology that kind of um, spearheaded it with uh, additional groups involved as well. Yeah, and at our site, it was a joint effort between pharmacy and ED providers when we first began. So we were all wanting to do something in response to the opioid epidemic to better serve and support our patients and the community. So we drafted a policy and procedures and took it through our hospital P&T committee. And then we made sure to keep it as broad as possible so that all patients could have access to it. Um, The other thing that we did is that we paired it with a second policy for our outpatient pharmacies so that they were able to follow our statewide protocol to provide a point of access for non-patients that were also requesting it. That was just something that we saw that as we would identify patients in the inpatient or the ED setting, if they had family there or maybe a friend, somebody with them, they may be also in need. But because they weren't a patient, we didn't actually have the mechanism. So we wanted to really, again, ensure that any patient that needed naloxone, that they could get access to it. Fantastic. Thank you to both of you. Um, I have a quick question to add to the previous one. Was this a multidisciplinary process? And if so, um, who was all involved? Dave, if you could start us off. Yeah, so for us, again, it's kind of emergency medicine, um, pharmacy, nursing, um, uh, our toxicology services, um, social work to, again, to kind of help um, spread the word, identify patients, um, a, especially ones that are kind of getting connected um, with whether it's induction of buprenorphine or, or treatment of substance use disorders legal. Um, and I can, I'm happy to talk about that, uh, later on, but, uh, legal was definitely involved. Um, and then from, you know, public health side of things, local state and federal, um, to help us from a grant perspective to, to pay for this naloxone supply. Um, those are kind of the biggest uh, stakeholders. Thank you. And Jess for your group. Yeah, we had, um, again, multidisciplinary for sure, but we had a lot of EM providers, um, along with, pain clinicians, we had expert counselors, uh, ED and pharmacy leadership. Um, And then we also got the um, State Department of Public Health involved. Again, that's where we obtain our free supply. There was a lot of communication back and forth with the uh, Board of Pharmacy as well, similar to what Dave pointed out, that there are some legal things that you do have to ensure that you're taking into consideration. So all of those different parties really kind of came together to get this off the ground. Great. I mean, you know, I appreciate um, all your comments regarding this, but an important part of, you know, this whole process of making sure the healthcare team members are educated um, and know, you know, about what all the work that's been done and how to um, distribute this. So how did you educate your health team members um, regard- on the process for this? And Jess, if you could share your experience first. Yeah, so we did a lot of communication via huddles and then um, email updates going out to the various provider groups, nursing physicians, pharmacy, kind of everybody. Um, And then we also did some education through our monthly pain forum lecture series that our pain clinicians host. So um, myself, uh, one of our expert counselors, one of our pain clinicians, we kind of did similar to the, like what we're doing today, kind of a podcast style lecture series where we kind of talk through what all was involved. Uh, We've also had talks and lectures on this at our pain conference that we do annually. 
Um, but really to make it successful, we need to ensure that everybody knew it was available. So lots of different mechanisms. Great. And Dave? Yeah, I'd say probably pretty similar um, to, to, to what Jess mentioned. Um, you know, primarily for us, you know, meetings, emails, um, we do have signs throughout the, the department. Um, and then really um, embedding it, incorporating it into our uh, new staff uh, education, whether it's a nurse, pharmacist, physician, um, it, really anybody, uh, patient care tech, social work um, on, on this process. Um, and then from there, just kind of giving updates um, on metrics or, you know, if there's any changes on a, you know, a annual, semi-annual basis. Great. Thanks um, to both of you for sharing your distribution and operational processes um, for, you know, the naloxone therapy. Um, another important item then is getting the actual product, the naloxone, to the patients. Um, how did each of you identify patients at risk um, and needing naloxone in the ED? So, Dave, if you could start us off. Yeah, so really anybody coming in, um, you know, post-opioid overdose, um, th this will be a part of, you know, the management, whether it's somebody that is going to be admitted to the hospital or uh, discharged from the ED. Um, anybody that's getting a prescription um, for an opioid, whether it's to short supply or, um, you know, a refill, something like that. Um, or anybody that really kind of asked, we, we um, you know, certainly made it available. As I mentioned, we have kind of signs throughout our ED. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, we can do is we can prescribe naloxone, right? We can, um, a prescriber can send that to a patient's pharmacy, but we, we know from studies, there's a good one from our colleagues at uh, Penn, that only one to 2% of those um, prescriptions are actually getting filled at a community pharmacy. So what's better than writing a prescription or electronically sending a prescription for naloxone, giving the patient naloxone. Um, so really our, our kind of initial target is anybody coming in with, um, you know, post opioid overdose, history of substance use disorder, anybody getting a prescription for an opioid. Um, those are the ones that we really target. Thanks. And Jess? Yeah, I would say similarly, um, any patient that has already had an overdose are definitely our highest priority, along with any of those with a new prescription for opioids, especially those that are opioid naive. Um, to what Dave mentioned, giving them the naloxone is huge because there unfortunately is a stigma to this and opioid use disorder. And so ensuring that patients have this medication there as kind of their level of protection um, the other thing that I would love to see, so the ER is a crazy place and there's always a huge focus on throughput and getting the patient out. And so if there's a way to automate or to provide some kind of a trigger based on the patient's medical record or something to help flag this for the provider, again, anything to help kind of bring it to their attention so it doesn't for get forgotten or lost in the shuffle of everything. So um, again, that's a, that would be the ideal way is if you could automate it. Um, but if not, this is a great opportunity for ED pharmacists in the emergency department. Again, we're often involved with a lot of these overdose cases and other prescribing of new opioid type medications. So if we can get involved and help to make that recommendation is also another great way. Thank you. Um, adding, I just thought of something to add to the question above. Um, you know, we hear a lot about this getting, you know, dispensed and utilized in the emergency department. Did each of you involve per being able to provide this therapy to patients um, at risk actually admitted to the hospital? And if so, how did you identify patients at risk um, for naloxone while they were admitted to the, you know, to the inpatient facility? Um, Dave, if you could share. 
Absolutely. Um, so I would say similar process, um, really based upon diagnosis, reason for coming to the hospital, um, but then also if they're on an opioid medication, whether it's continuation or initiation, um, that, that those kind of got flagged. Um, we originally started with just dis, um, dispensing from the ED, but then um, you know moved into it from the um, discharge um, from an inpatient perspective. Um, the other thing and I forgot to mention, we, we, we do it for both the inpatient and in the ED side of things is just kind of building these into a lot of our order sets. Um, you know, a, a more common one that we do now is buprenorphine induction in the ED. So we have an order set for that, which automatically gets pre-checked with a two-go naloxone supply. So whether you're just dispensing naloxone by itself or it's part of the you know, entire management for a patient with opioid use disorder, you know, multiple ways to go about it to, to ensure we give this life-saving therapy. Uh, our process is very similar um, on the inpatient side. Again, part of our education has been to help identify these patients, both in the ED and on the inpatient side that are high risk for an opioid-induced respiratory depression event, or again, an overdose so that we're relying on the providers and other members of the healthcare team to really identify these individuals. There are screening tools available to help identify patients in need of naloxone, but they're not perfect. Again, if it's automated, it depends on that information to be in the electronic health record, which isn't always available or included. So that just keen eye looking for those patients and being cognizant of its availability is key. Thanks. Um, you know, an important part of providing their, any type of therapy to patients is actually measuring the outcome of the service being provided. Would each of you be able to share um, what processes, if any, do you have in place to assess any outcomes um, of this program? And Jess, if you could start us off and Dave, you can then follow, that'd be great. Yeah, this is definitely a harder thing to tackle because there's no really easy way to know that an intervention you had made, made an impact or when you can't follow the patient. So once they leave your hospital, we don't know that that naloxone was used or what eventually happened to the patient. The Department of Public Health does have metrics on the number of overdose deaths in your community. Um, I know that's something that we look to, but again, it's difficult to make any direct correlation between those numbers uh, and the number of kits that you may be dispensed. But right now, really, we're just looking at that true, how many kits are we able to support? apply to the public. Thanks. And Dave? Yeah, I mean, completely agree um, with what Jess said. It, it's a difficult area to study. Um, you know, for us, we primarily rely on metrics, um, typically around 20 to 30 um, uh, naloxone units per month. Uh, we dispense from our ED. We have a, a typical um, yearly census of 65,000 ED visits to kind of to, to, to orient you to that. You know, anecdotally, you know, we'll have, you know, patients that come in post-opioid overdose and, you know, um, had taken that supply because we still have the box, you know, they have it with them. We can see it was dispensed from the ED, um, but it's really uh, hard to, um, in majority of the situations, know that it was that direct supply that they used um, for, for reversal, kind of as Jess mentioned. Um, we had talks about also looking at it from a qualitative research perspective um, and, and different ideas on that. But um, at that point, it's at this point right now, it's just discussion, nothing, nothing more than that. Thank you. Um, did either of you have any potential barriers that um, you had to overcome when implementing this program? Um, if you could describe to us if you had any barriers, how you overcame those, um, that would be helpful um, for those, you know, thinking about this in the future. Um, Dave, why don't you get us started? Yeah, so I think the, you know, the biggest hurdle is getting the band together, right? Um, so whether it's um, 
hopefully pharmacy, nursing, physician, um, uh, C-suites, um, as many involved as possible and recognizing the problem, right? This, um, unfortunately, this uh, opioid um, epidemic is not going away. Look at last year's overdose numbers, it's getting worse and worse. Um, so one, it's kind of getting everybody together and recognizing the problem. Um, I think the next biggest barrier then um, in can be the biggest limitation is who's going to pay for the supply. So whether it's initiated um, through grant, uh, grants, which we used to, um, uh, initially to help out, um, we're also a 340B institution, um, so we can utilize that. Or if it's something that the hospital is just going to eat the cost of it, um, obviously this is a life-saving you know medication. And if you you know look at cost-benefit analysis and you know quality-adjusted life years and all that type of stuff, this is a life-saving medication that you know would return. Um, you know, money on investment. That, I like to use that because we're talking about um, patients' lives. But you're going to have to have something in place to basically have this naloxone supply and dispense it out. The other one was a legal perspective, and, and not this. What for us wasn't so much because it was naloxone. We we have a, a number number of medications that we do a quote unquote to go supply, basically um, similar dispensing um, where we'll have a, a yeah. Um, a label um, without the patient's name, prescriber, or date, it'll get removed from our dispensing cabinet given to the patient. Typically, these are like antibiotics, um, uh, naloxone, um, detox medications, stuff like that. Um, there was a legal that got involved from a nursing perspective because uh, a nurse would chart it off on the medical record saying this was quote unquote administered, even though it was not administered. So they basically had to do a whole legal review. And, and again, this was not just for naloxone, but our whole to-go process to make sure everything was kind of compliant and not putting, you know, any anybody's license at risk because technically we weren't administering it. So we it ended up being just a lot of verbiage change on the EMAR side of things. Um, but that was probably the most um, one I didn't anticipate. Um, certainly the cost and getting the, the band together, I thought would be the most challenging. But then that uh, legal aspect, which came about... Uh, two or three years ago, uh, presented a challenge as well. Thanks, Dave. And Jess, would you share your experience? Yeah, I think understanding local pharmacy rules and regulations um, is one of the biggest things that you have to do to make it successful. Again, for us, I'd mentioned that we have to do the PMP reporting. And so that became a challenge because we didn't want to impede this from being utilized. And so if we had had the providers have to go in and manually do this, because again, it's not going through an outpatient system. So there's no automated way. Unfortunately, our EHR on the inpatient side isn't integrated with our PMP system yet for the state. So it is very manual. Um, luckily, we were able to partner with our outpatient pharmacies. And so we were able to generate reports to them and then they take on the brunt of that responsibility. But that was a big thing to kind of work out the logistics from that side of thing. Um, also, again, knowing what's available in terms of supply. So each state usually has some kind of a program going on, whether you have to obtain it through grants or just free access. So knowing who to ask and where to go. So I think starting with your Department of Public Health is usually the best thing because they can really kind of put you in touch with the right players. Um, and then integrating with your workflows. So again, if it's an impeding process, then it's never going to get fully adopted and integrated and it won't be sustainable. So that was a big thing for us is figuring out kind of similarly to Dave that 
when it's there, how does the nurse know how to chart against it? Because we're not administering it in the ER, we're dispensing it, but having it easily available for the provider to order. So kind of all of those different things are stuff that you have to consider. Otherwise, again, all of your efforts will kind of go to waste. That's definitely great advice um, from both of you. But, you know, not often um, when we implement a process, do we get it 100% correct um, upon an initial implementation of the program. Um, have either of you had to make any changes since rolling this process out initially? Um, Jeff, why don't you get us started and then Dave, you can chime in. Really, our process has been relatively consistent. I think the biggest thing is, again, more education, trying to get it um, more utilization has been the biggest thing that we've been continuing to do. One thing that did pop up that kind of took me by surprise was our expert counselors were doing more community outreach events. And so they really wanted to have a way to provide this out in the community. So that took some additional stuff. I'm not going to get into all of the hurdles and all of the logistics that went into that process, but I would just say be open to other opportunities um, and be willing to work with other departments. Again, my, the goal of this program is to take care of our patients and provide naloxone so that they have it accessible. So there's just new avenues that are always going to pop up. Thanks, Jeff and Dave. Yeah, for us, I mean, the, the, the biggest change was um, uh, switch over from our formulation going from the injectable to the, the nasal spray, which I, I greatly um, prefer that one. Um, I, I think it's kind of a, a better product and easier for the patients. Um, outside of that, it's pretty much the same. Um, with when we create um, new order sets, um, we'll, we, we make sure that we include that order um, naloxone to go um, for various um, you know different situations. So I'm just kind of staying on um, on uh, on base with that when it comes to the electronic health record. But pretty much the same process um, uh, from when we first started. Thank you. Um, before we conclude this podcast, do either of you have any pieces of advice for those listening? and looking to start a naloxone distribution program? Uh, yeah, I think the biggest thing is just reach out to providers or other leaders at your site. Uh, chances are others are already considering this or would be receptive to the idea. So then you can really work together to develop a process that's gonna work for you. And Dave, what's your last minute advice? <laughs> Um, every ED is different. Um, so, so your process may look different than what, uh, Jess and I described, but don't feel like you have to recreate the wheel, right? Um, there's a lot of similarities, reach out to, you know, reach out to us, ASHP connect, uh, Twitter, social media. Um, you know, if you have questions or you really anything at all, because, you know, you know, one big happy emergency medicine family or hospital, uh, family, so really just kind of get that ball going um, and don't get discouraged if you don't have as much uptake initially um, on, on the local side of things. Um, keep keep pursuing and, and keep pushing for this uh, life-saving therapy to, to get dispensed from your hospital. Fantastic. Um, I really want to thank both of our guests for a great topic and discussion. For our ASHP members, you can earn free continuing education by visiting elearning.ashp.org backslash podcast. The CE code for this podcast is 22047A. Again, that's 22047 and then the letter A. You will need this code to claim your CE credit before it expires. 
If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources on emergency medicine. You can find member-exclusive offerings, such as the Recorded Emergency Pharmacist Series, links to articles, and guidelines for emergency medicine and other practice resources. Thanks again for tuning in to this session, and join us here every Thursday, where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP.